Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. Video podcast, actually, this time. Um, and I'm on with Amber Armstrong today. I'm very excited. Amber, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, happy to. So it's so great to see you, Alex. I am the CMO of Live Person. I've been here for just under a year, and previous to that, spent about 15 years at IBM in marketing as well. Wow, that's a cool, cool journey. And you you do a lot of work around AI and marketing, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, both at IBM and now at LivePerson. Very cool. How have you seen AI develop as a business tool for uh, yeah. over the last decade? Yeah, well, it's really interesting. So, you know, AI started out and IBM played a huge role with Watson at that when it initially started becoming kind of more mainstream. What's happened over time is that it's gone from all the things we can do to what's actually happening and the outcomes that it's driving. You know, one of the things that we are really focused on is um, we just we just relaunched our brand around this idea of curiously human. And curiously human is built off of the idea that you can make your customer interactions seem like you're interacting with a human, but it's actually an automation. And, and that's super exciting because you can you couldn't have done that with the earliest stages of AI. It would have been a really terrible experience. But as AI has progressed in its capabilities, we're able to really do meaningful work with it that creates better customer experiences, but that also drives tons of value for brands. That's really cool. So it passes the Turing test uh, to some degree. Yeah. Cool. Tell us more about uh, Curiously Human. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super excited to tell you about that. It is uh, been a labor of love for our team for a while now. And you know, we were challenged to really rethink our brand. And when I came in, I felt we were talking too much about the products and the features and the functions rather than how we really solve these problems and kind of hiding our light of we do solve really big, important problems with great outcomes. And so uh, we wanted to re-envision re how we interact from a brand perspective, really being very external focused, consumer focused and brand focused, right? So that was really important for us. And so we landed with Curiously Human. And because it has such a tight alignment to both what consumers need and what brands need, the great thing about being able to do that is it sets a great North Star for our product, right? So our product team is now evaluating all the things that they're doing. Is, is this going to help us create a more curiously human experience? Yes or no? That helps determine whether or not we continue forward with it. We are really rich in data. We have a billion conversations, just about a billion conversations per month on our platform. So our AI is super smart. Even if we don't talk about it as being super smart, we're talking about it as being real, not super smart. Uh, but it's smart because of those billion conversations. And we have 34 billion API calls per month on our platform, which means it's engaging throughout these systems. So as marketers, it's engaging across the call centers, it's engaging across a variety of platforms. All those things really come together 
to create this experience of like having a brand that's very aspirational, that's also really grounded in the outcomes for the brands and for the consumers. And really serendipitously, you know, almost our surprise is it really also breathes a lot of life into our name as live person, right? So live person creates curiously human digital experiences, makes a lot of sense, right? Because it's, you know, it's person and human. And, um, and that was really more by chance, but it's one of the things that when we really thought about is curiously human, the right brand for us, that really was important for us to feel that connection to our brand. We've been around for 26 years. So it's a, it's important that we maintain some of our legacy in that way. That's interesting. So it uses text to communicate with people. Do you think one day we'll be able to communicate visually with people? Oh. Yeah, we do it already for customers. So we have video capabilities. We have, you know, so so it's if a brand wants to engage with their consumers, they can do it across essentially any platform. So text messaging, sure, Apple Business Chat, Google Business Chat, uh, WhatsApp, uh, Facebook, all the, the major kind of platforms that you would think about from a social perspective, but also via email, via social, um, you name it, we've got the platforms. We've got some other channels that are really exciting there are kind of non-normal channels starting to come online. Uh, so there, there's a lot of, it's, it's because when you talk to your friends, right, you talk to them on any platform. You're connected on Facebook, you connect on text and email. And, and so we want to mimic however consumers interact with the friends with how they can interact with the brands. Yeah. And do you cover both kind of prospecting and warming leads and also like on the customer service side where you already have acquired the customer or like where does it fit in the funnel best yeah so we work it, we work on both sides as the short story um, we were very very engaged in the call center right so when people call into a brand take your airline as an example uh, it's really expensive for that airline to take that call so what you'll see when you call into a lot of your airlines is that you actually, they'll say, hey, if you want us to text you, we can. And so then you can start messaging with them. And then that reduces a lot of cost from that perspective. What actually happens, though, is think of think of a telco provider, right? So you're messaging with a telco provider and that telco provider, based on all these APIs and these connections to data, can actually say, hey, you actually have a free upgrade available. Would you like to take place of that? And then you can actually make a purchase through, the, through messaging. So it's both on the side of reducing customer service cost, increasing, improving that experience. I can see how it's really valuable to businesses to have that, um, that capability. What would be the profile of a customer that would benefit more for, from, um, from this technology than, than another? I think it's really universally useful. Um, we have lots of B2C clients that we work with. Some of the, the biggest names out there are, are clients of ours. Um, and we also work with B2B businesses that are also really great clients of ours as well. The difference in how those interact and level of automations 
um, varies. So if you are in a consumer-focused business, then you likely have a very high volume of data. Based on that high volume of data, the AI is able to continually get smarter and smarter. Uh, whereas if you're in a B2B environment, you have data and that data is incredibly important. It may be at a less volume, which just extends the amount of time it takes the AI to learn and to get smarter with it. It also depends on that time frame. also depends on um, how much you have your live agents actually engaging with the AI and training the AI. Um, for our customers that use our advanced AI and analytics package, they actually have agents really engaged and they are looking at an entirely different set of metrics than a standard call center. Because when you're in a messaging environment, you don't, uh, you, you're not thinking about average call time because your agent is now not talking to one person and limited to that one engagement. They're talking to 20 people at a time over messaging over whatever channel that consumer wants to engage in. And so it really changes the dynamics inside of a call center. It's like the idea of like AI assisted versus replaced. Like this, this really yeah. does like, multiply the power of of one call center representative absolutely it's not at all about replacing it's about making it more efficient and more effective both of those things have to be true the ai itself is is learning so there's there must be like a machine learning component to it where it's kind of kind of it'll make a decision and then it'll get some sort of feedback whether that was like a good or bad way to respond. So how does that work? Like how does the machine feedback like if it's doing well? Right. So it tracks sentiment as one thing that's, you know, is certainly Watson's great great at tracking sentiment as well. Um, and so it tracks like is this is this a positive experience? At the end of it, are they saying thank you? Are they, you know, super helpful? That kind of a thing. And so being able to see that is really important. Something that's really interesting, though, is standard bots will go out and say, well, that was a satisfactory, that that interaction ended. So it ended successfully. It never got handed to an agent. So that's what we call a contained conversation. So meaning the bot handled it entirely on their own. What we find is that oftentimes those interactions are junk, right? Like it's the person ended the conversation, they didn't get what they actually wanted, but they were just done talking to this, this experience. And so what we've done is implemented different metrics that can say, like, depending on sentiment, depending on a whole bunch of very detailed factors, was that actually a positive outcome for that consumer? And if yes, then great, let's create more of those. And if it wasn't, then it can route it to someone to really figure out what went wrong in this engagement. So that the next time the automations encounter that, it's constantly updating and learning. Makes sense. The only the only tough thing to measure would probably be sarcasm. If somebody was like uh, messaging something sarcastically, computers would probably have a tough time pick, yeah. picking it up. Yeah, I think it's. It's actually getting the, the tools today. I think it's for sure when when AI started out, I think that definitely was true. I think the tools are actually getting pretty good at measuring sarcasm now. That's, That's good. pretty cool. What's more challenging is um, some of the cultural differences. 
So translating languages is easy enough, uh, but you get into things like uh, Tagalog and, and languages that are kind of a combination of different languages um, that can be really challenging, right? Like kind of uh, when people speak kind of a, a combination of English and Spanish, as an example, that can be very challenging in, in a bot environment. So that's something we work really hard to make sure that we have interactions across all the relevant languages and that we're training the AI in those languages. That's, I didn't think about that. That's a really interesting consideration. Um especially like multi-languages, like if somebody's writing in two languages, that must be very difficult to pick up. Yeah, yeah. How does AI benefit marketers in the marketplace today? Well, I think it benefits both marketers and consumers. And I think it's really important that both of those things are true. Because if it just benefits marketers, then the consumer gets kind of this terrible experience. And that doesn't seem actually like a great outcome for, for the world, honestly. Uh, but if it benefits both brands and consumers, then it's actually really, really useful. So the way that that happens is AI allows us to understand the data, understand what someone's saying, like really drive out of that the intents that they have. It allows us to connect that intent and that conversation with all of the other interactions in the ecosystem, right? And to really be able to say, okay, because I know this is the intent of this person and I've had these interactions with them in the past, either through our platform or through API connections, then I think I really know how to help this person. And when the, the automation knows how to help that person, then they do it without the interaction of agents they do it in a way that's really efficient and really effective. And as they do it, they're able, the brand is able to reduce cost, right? They're able to handle more customer inquiries, create better loyalty, but all without actually having to increase the number of agents and that sort of thing. And it's better for the agents because the agents actually start spending their time training the bots and the customer gets a better experience. The agents get a better experience. The brands get better financial outcomes and they get more loyal customers. So I think it's, uh, it's really exciting how it's all coming together. Yeah, that, that is interesting. I think automation is going to be very important over the next decade um, and in every business. And I, I think that the, the start is going to be bots and things that live on computers. And I think the, Next step we're going to see in this area is actually physical um, robots to stepping into a lot of roles and doing a similar transformation, um, but but in the sort of physical world. And um, I I, th I just think that's really interesting how businesses are going to uh, ch the inner workings of businesses are changing right now, and and we get to kind of see that change. Um, yeah. Life. It's very cool. Where do you think that the innovations are going to happen in marketing in the future? Yeah, I think so. Data has been really important for a really long time. But the most important thing is the connectivity of that data, right? So data still lives in, in lots of silos and a lot of situations. So how we as marketers connect that data is incredibly important. 
um, all to the benefit of the consumers and the, you know, if you're in B2B, the, 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 uh, you know, leaders that you're working with. Uh, I think that that's going to continue to be really important. Um, but also thinking about how do you limit the data in a way that it doesn't give you distractions? Like how do you really focus in on what's the most important data to, to use and how to continually optimize and improve that? One of the things I'm really excited about right now is we just released our new website. And so we are thinking about, great, let's let's dig into the, how's that performing, right? And as a marketer, it's like a marketer's dream, right? To get a, a brand new website, you know, end-to-end, new platform. And we're doing all these kind of great things around, you know, the headless CMS and we're using Gatsby and WordPress and kind of combining that to make a website that performs insanely quickly. And you think like, okay, that's, that's, it's great, but it's still about providing that experience on the back end, Right. And the only way that, you know, if you're providing that experience is great. Like what's our page load time? It all goes back to analytics. Right. And so just continuing to have our, our finger on how are the analytics trending? I, I remember when I started at IBM, I asked, why do we have these different databases? Like, why isn't it just in the same database? It didn't make sense. Like, it, And the answer I got was, they're like, almost like different cars or some, some sort of large machines. Like, they do different things. And that that's exactly what I think will be fixed in the future, that, that we'll need these different data warehouses for different kinds of data. I think there will be more common, larger databases that can accommodate for different kinds of data um, that allow you to tap into the uh, any any kind of marketing data, um, regardless of the platform it may be coming from. And um, right now, it's it's messy. They, like you need, there's actually businesses that their whole business is aggregating data from the different data sources because of this issue, um, and they're very successful. Like those, those businesses are successful because of that market need. So um, yeah, I think integration uh, will increase uh, if, across data sources in the future. Yeah, for sure. absolutely. We actually, uh, we haven't started yet. Um, so, so I don't know how, how well it's going to go. I can't speak to it, but we uh, actually just purchased Datarama, um, which is something, you know, I, I, I was familiar with at IBM um, because we're trying to pull all these sources together. Um, I think there is some choices to, to be made in these environments of how do you pull all these sources together? And when you're a really large brand, it can be even more complicated because you've got so much history on the existing platforms. And how do you make sure you bring those together in a way that really makes a lot of sense? Um, but I'm excited to see what we're able to do with, with Datarama, but I, I purchased it specifically for that point of being able to aggregate data across a variety of platforms. That, that brings me to a question of you moved from marketing, doing marketing at a very, very large company to a smaller company. How does the responsibilities and mindset change when you're thinking about marketing for the two different kinds of companies? Yeah, so when you're at a really large company, there is an infrastructure that's supporting you. Um, IBM has 
hands down one of the best data and analytics capabilities built internally. Um, it's we've toured other CMOs through that, and it's just really, really exceptional. Um, when you go to a smaller company, even though your live person's almost five hundred million dollars, we're certainly not not tiny. Um, but when you go to a smaller company, you don't have that infrastructure of this giant company really building out those things. You have to really think about how do I do this? How can I do it with as much out of the box technology as possible so that I'm able to to really execute it? Um, I think the other thing that's really different is the scope of execution that you get when you're at a smaller company. So when you're at a very large company, you are kind of given your, your area that you focus on and you kind of stay inside of that range. Whereas at a larger company, you have your focus area, but you get to kind of experiment across a variety of things. So I think it's actually a really good experience broadener for people. Mm-hmm. What skills would you recommend that somebody builds to get into um, marketing So the way that I have built my career and the way that I encourage others to do is to pick a North Star role. You can always change your mind on what that North Star is, right? It could, you can change it every day if you wanted to. I think that's probably not the best advice, but you probably could. And for me, I decided a long time ago, I wanted to be the most senior person in marketing at IBM. And so I then started, I looked at who the most senior person at IBM was at the time. It was a guy named Bill Duncan, who is just this amazing human. Uh, he's, he's since retired from IBM. Uh, and I just wrote down all of his skills and I just started collecting them. I went from job to job to job. And when I got my first CMO role, which was, I guess, 2017, 2018, um, uh, the reason I got that role is because I had such a diverse set of experiences. I had done all of the roles in marketing essentially by that point. What you decide to do when you're building skills has to be based on where you want to go. You wouldn't get in a car and just say, oh, this looks interesting. That looks interesting. I'm just going to drive around, right? You always have a goal in mind. So you want to make sure you're taking the right path to get to that goal. You may get halfway to that goal and say, you know, actually, I think I actually want to go to this other restaurant or I want to go to wherever. Right. And so you can change the path that you take, but you don't want to run aimlessly in your car. So why would you do that in your career? Yeah, I totally I I totally understand that and resonate with it. I have a lot of uh, moonshot goals. I'm curious, how do you um, do, do you set crazy wild goals and does that does that work or do you need to set something more like attainable yeah i think i think you do both i think um when you are trying to figure out what you want to do for your long-term career make that a huge goal you could always change your mind right you could always say oh actually kind of happy at this level i want to kind of stay at this level at any point like you're in control over it Um, But you should always set that goal really, really big. But where people get lost is when they set a really big goal and then it just feels unattainable. So what you have to do is break it down into how can I actually get there? So maybe your goal is to be, I don't know, let's just pick a really big goal. President of the United States. Great. How do you get there? 
Well, the first thing you do is you start learning about politics, right? The next thing is you start participating in local uh, local politics and, and, and making some contributions so that you learn the way. And then you judge your success based on your ability to achieve the earlier milestones. Because otherwise, if you say, hey, I want to be president one day and you have no idea if you're making any progress towards that goal or not, uh, unless you have those, those very finite milestones. Mm-hmm. Have you ever set a goal that you really w- thought you wanted, but then as you made progress towards it, you realized this is probably not, not, not for me? I've changed goals. I think it's really important to do, right? So so I've definitely had goals where, you know, I've been like, okay, I really want to go do this or that. And then said, you know, as I've learned more about it, I actually don't think that's the right goal. Um, but I think that's the great benefit of having those smaller milestones because you don't invest your whole life trying to be president when you go and start actually trying to execute some of those earlier milestones. You find out it's not a fit. You haven't wasted all that time and energy. Mm-hmm. So when you're running a marketing organization, what tools or areas have been the most impactful to marketing operations? I think, you know, uh, when I was at IBM, we were just making the switch from uh, to Marketo and Salesforce. I think that those are great tools. Uh, we have Marketo and Salesforce here at LivePerson as well. I feel good about those tools. We also have uh, implemented SixthSense and uh, really happy with how we're seeing progress in Sixth Sense and the progression of clients between the various stages. Um, that's a very account-based approach that we're taking. Um, I think you know the team uses outreach. We have lots of different tools out there. I think it's more about deciding what outcome you're trying to get and which team, which tool is going to be the easiest to use for your team, so that they can do it quickly and with ease and you want to make sure that it's not so super complicated that when you know people move on in their careers and they take different roles you have to take a huge step back in in execution so i think that simplicity is super important it's not only important to have a you know good uh, marketing processes but it's also important that those processes are easy enough to hand from person to person so there's not disruption um randomly when when people shift roles exactly i had i had this idea for an ai landing page where the ai may ask you like a leading question and then it'll populate the web page with whatever information you need um based on whatever questions it asks you do you think that that is a that's probably going to exist in the future I think it has existed for for a long time. I think the challenge is um, it drops engagement. There's a lot of data that around that. I mean, that's been around for a long time with a lot of different um, a lot of different vendors, and you can just implement it pretty pretty basically, even without AI. Uh, but it but it drops engagement in the site really quickly um, because people, for a variety of reasons, will say, "Oh, it's just I just want you to figure it out." Right now, there's a lot of tools that just personalized based off the IP address. And I think that's actually, we're seeing that much, much, much more valuable than actually actively asking the person. You can actively ask them as they get further in the funnel, but when you do it, when they come to the landing page, um, there's really, really bad engagement on the page historically. 
So, in other words, customers, they, they don't want to do too much work related to finding the information they need. It should, to some degree, be easier for them. Yeah, it will. There's, there's a couple things. So people, especially, and there's big differences on this generationally, um, people have different level comfort levels with the information that they share, right? And so you can't stereotype any individual, right? But broadly speaking, people get very specific on what they want to share or they don't want to share and they're really passionate about it. So you don't know that when someone comes into the website. So if you ask them for this very personal thing of, you know, Hey, why are you here? They, you don't know what bucket they're in. And so they may or may not want that to be personalized. What you can pretty much guarantee is that most people will appreciate having content on the page that is relevant for their industry. That's relevant for their geography. And if you can handle an industry and a geography lens, then I think that really has a huge benefit. But that person doesn't feel they were intruded on by having to answer a question that they may or might not be comfortable mm -hmm. with. Well, this has been a really amazing conversation, Amber. I want to thank you again for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Alex. It's great to talk to you today. Great. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you soon.